Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Welcome to the SVA Quarterly podcast. My name is Patrick Bowen and I'm an analyst in the impact investing team at Social Ventures Australia. Today on the podcast, we'll be exploring the new PIN family reunification program that has been deployed under a social impact bond mechanism in three different states. One was a successful landing, one was terminated early, and one has just taken flight. To dig a little deeper into each new pin and unearth some of the learnings from this unique program and funding arrangement, I'm joined by Elise Sainty, who is a director in the SVA Impact Investing Team. Elise has been in the pilot cabin uh, for all three new pins and has played a key role in getting each of them off the ground. Welcome, Elise. It's great to have you here today. And it's not often we get to just sit down and, and chat like this. Agree. Yes, well, great to be here, Pat, and really looking forward to talking new pin with you. Before we get into the, the details, perhaps you might want to give an overview for people of how new pin works. Yes, of course. Uh, um, so, yeah, a bit, bit of background on the new pin program. It um, has been operated in, uh, by Uniting in Australia since the late 90s and was based on a successful model uh, in the United Kingdom. And it was developed largely in response to the needs of new mothers experiencing a range of um, challenging issues such as ment- mental illness, family violence, drug and alcohol misuse, and for those mothers who were also at risk of physically or emotionally harming their children. And in the Australian context, New Pitten primarily works to restore children in the out-of-home care environment to the care of their parents. It works with parents, both mothers and fathers, through a trauma-informed lens to enable them to create a supportive and safe family environment. Participating parents uh, attend the new PIN centres two days a week for up to 18 months, where they receive therapeutic, non-judgmental support to address emotional issues, improve bonding with their children, and develop positive parenting skills. Now, Elise, the program has obviously been around for some time, starting in the late 90s. So how did it differ once it was you know, first delivered under the social impact bond arrangement in New South Wales? Mm, it's a good question. The interesting thing about social impact bonds, I think, is that they, they force a sharper focus on, firstly, who you're going to work with, and then secondly, of course, measurement. And the measurement's important because there's money attached to, to that measurement. So for the NUPIN program uh, that, as you say, was already established, there were four centres in New South Wales before the social impact bond came along, um, the first thing was that much sharper focus on, on eligibility, like who was going to be enrolled. Um, and that's important because it, it, it makes sure that you're, you're clear about what the outcomes are relative to, to sort of, you know, what would have happened with that group in the first place. Um, the second thing that was a, a fundamental part of that was that it, the, the focus shifted somewhat from both being both about preservation of families, keeping them together when they were at risk of being um, put into out-of-home care, uh, and put that, that focus onto restoration. So families where the children were already in out-of-home care. And there's still a, a blend within the new PIN uh, model in New South Wales, but the, the advent of the social impact bond meant that the, the primary focus did shift to, to restoration. And, and part of that was driven by um, the fact that those were the families in probably the deepest need and also, I guess, pragmatically from a government perspective, that's where there were the greatest cost savings because a child that's already in care is already um, you know, incurring a lot of um, costs for the taxpayer. So the, the 
New Pin Social Benefit Bond in New South Wales was first launched um, in New South Wales in 2013, and that was followed by the Queensland um, New Pin Social Benefit Bond in 2017. And now we've just launched the New Pin South Australia Social Impact Bond earlier mm-hmm. this year. Hooray. And, um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, the Queensland iteration of the, the New Pin Social Benefit Bond terminated um, during uh, the middle of 2020. Mm. And we'll touch upon some of the learnings today as, um, you know, from that, that disappointing outcome. So I'm guessing you know, when you first started working on uh, New Pin New South Wales that you didn't really expect there to be another two, uh, two other uh, New Pin social impact bonds down the track. You know, what, what is it that about the New Pin program that makes it so well suited to um, social impact bonds and outcomes-based funding arrangements? Yeah, well, firstly, you're right. I didn't expect there to be two more. I wasn't even sure there was going to be one more of anything. So NewPin was the very first social impact bond in Australia. There were a couple of others at the time that were in development in New South Wales. But it was it was the grand experiment, really. And I think that the some of the attributes of NewPin and particularly that sort of out-of-home care um, social, social issue or area that meant that it was conducive both to being the first and then also... Um, an early experiment for other states is is probably centres on the fact that there is a reasonably easy way to measure success. And that's not always the case in some programs. But for the case of NewPin, there is a, a measure, is the child at home safely with their family, which aligns well with both the social impact, so stronger, happier families and children that are thriving, hopefully longer term. So that's the sort of the, the main um, goal the program has, but also financial impact for government that I touched on earlier. And uh, you know, out-of-home care is very expensive and um, it, it works best for everyone if a child does not have to be in out-of-home care. So I think the fact that that, that area and the goal of NewPin aligns so closely with something that's relatively easy to measure means that it is quite sort of you know, applicable for the, uh, the social impact bond concept. And as I've learnt, Often when developing a SIB, the first thing um, that you start with is, is looking at the eligibility criteria and defining that, who's in and who's out of the program. And then understanding what's the size of the, the eligible population within the, the geographic region that you want, you want the service to operate. And why, why is that so important? Yeah, you're right. It is the, the starting point, isn't it? Because um, being clear about who who you're working with, like what's the, the specific need that you're trying to address is, you know, is the anchor point. So from that flows the program logic. So you know, who are you trying to work with and therefore what are the issues that you're addressing and therefore how will you go about um, supporting them. Uh, and being, being clear about the, that eligibility, I think I touched on that briefly before, is also important because it lets you um, measure fairly because once you know specifically which subgroup is being targeted then you can do the work about trying to sort of understand what's actually happening for that population um, in the absence of the program so what is the the rate of their use of other services etc so and that means you can set a target that's that that's fair relative to that group so what you don't want to do is set a target that's too hard because you've got a much more complex um uh, group of people that you're working with, so that's that's sort of a, the starting point. Is you know 
the eligibility criteria so that you know that the program logic is suited and you can set targets. But then comes the, the slightly more um, practical, complex thing, as we, you know, we, we often find out, which is just because you've identified that somebody is theoretically would work for this program would suit, there's a gap between that and then knowing where those people are in the community and finding them and helping them um, find the program. And particularly when you're working with uh, the sort of more pointy end sort of social issues, the need is large, but the number might be quite small. So you need to know how many of those people are in a in a in a population um, in a in a particular setting, so that if you put the service there, it's not just a matter of you know if you if you will if you build it they come because there might not be enough people to actually make um, to have a critical mass within the service. So doing that sort of work of understanding how many people really are in the population that have that need, and then understanding how are you going to find them? Like, what's the referral process, the, the triaging in a way, or what's the outreach process that means that you can you can actually go and, and, and bring those people into the program? And so the, the new PIM program, it's got at a high level, the, the cohort is very similar for, for each new PIM, but I guess across different uh, regions that can vary quite a bit. You know, so for example, the New South Wales um, version of, of new PIM was largely deployed in metropolitan regions where Queensland was in uh, regional areas. How, how did um, each program sort of go about um, trying to engage with, with you know, the populations in, in those areas? Yeah, so before I get into the specifics, maybe just a, a, a quick sort of um, clarification, which is the NUPIN program is targeting families generally where the child is already in out-of-home care and where the child is young. So we're looking at families who where the children are below school age because a core part of the model is that the parent and the child both attend a centre um, for a couple of days a week. So the child needs to be young enough that they're not in school and they're able to come along to the, the, the program. Um, and that creates some some you know some challenges for a program like NUPIN because it is centre based and it is quite intensive. Families have to come for a couple of days. That does then limit the number of people that are that are able to do that sort of you know from a practical perspective. So yeah, where we saw it sort of deployed in, in both New South Wales and Queensland and, and it will be the case in South Australia, to a large extent the the, the conduit for those families finding NUPIN is through the government. So it's through the, the, the child protection workers in the various um, you know, government agencies that are, that are working in this area. And you know, that's probably a, a key learning for me personally was how, how complex that can be as a system. So even in New South Wales where the centre existed and was having good results, there was this need to constantly refresh the knowledge of the child protection workers because there's high staff turnover within that that area. They've got a you know complex landscape, many other services, many families that have different levels of need. So Newpin's just one program that that suits some families really well, but it is a bit of sometimes it's almost like the needle in a haystack, like finding the right family for that for that program. So a lot of work has to go into managing that sort of referral. Um, sort of system that, that is around NUPIN. In in Queensland, you know, as you said, that the one of the the challenges, one of the things that was being trialed was how NUPIN worked in more of a regional setting. And the first centre was set up in, in Cairns. And the there was partly we, as we touched on before, the 
the sort of smaller population just in that sort of regional setting meant you did need to reach a large proportion of those who were eligible. And then there was sort of some of the, I don't even want to call them challenges, but the, the dynamics of that area meant that appropriately the government was looking at making sure that First Nations families in particular were working in culturally appropriate services and often they were services that were managed by you know, First Nations community, um, organisations. And that did mean that um, NUPIN, which was being run by Uniting Care Queensland, which is not a First Nations organisation, didn't fit into that, that mould. So there were some constraints on you know, some of the natural referral pathways for, for NUPIN in, in Queensland. So, yeah, that sort of being able to engage with people appropriately to, to find them and bring them in took, you know, took a little bit more time and there were some more, more barriers there. In, in South Australia, we looked at a lot of um, data and analysis commissioned by the South Australian government in terms of understanding, you know, who the, who the population is in, in in South Australia, and and you know that sort of you know, almost about a third of that will be made up by um, First Nations um, children and families. And so, how will uh, in South Australia they go about um, engaging with with those? particular families? Uh, you, you're right, it will be around a third and, and that's just you know, the sad reflection of out-of-home care stats you know, across the country is, is First Nations families are way overrepresented in the, the child protection system. Uh, so it is a, a, a critical focus of both government and uniting communities in, in South Australia. And Uniting Communities there has been very um, cognizant of probably you know the learning from the the challenges in Queensland as well. There's been a lot of focus on ensuring that um, the the centres are culturally welcoming, are co-located with other you know Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander services, and you know a lot of work is already going into sort of building the that sort of community connection so that people you know, understand how this service works and how it, it can work. Because what we did see in New South Wales is that NUPIN worked very well with First Nations families um, and non-First First Nations families. It was, you know, it sort of was an effective program for both of those groups. One of the key differences between the South Australian iteration of NUPIN and its Eastern State counterparts is the outcome metric, mm -hmm. and that's what government pays the service provider um, for. Um, and so in South Australia, the outcome metric they use is the proportion of children reunified with their families, whereas the New Pin, New South Wales and Queensland use the total number of reunifications. I just want to understand, what, what was the reason for this difference and the change in thinking over time? Yeah, subtle but important, that difference, isn't it? So it, it, it starts from the fact that you know, government savings actually arise from the number of children that are restored. That's the driver for their, for their savings. And hence the focus early on for New South Wales and that flowed to Queensland was on how many children are at home because that times a dollar amount is, is the savings. Uh, but as I've, we've already talked about, the referral process is, is largely government controlled. So they, they're the ones in, in charge of the tap. And if you don't have enough uh, families coming into the program, it's very difficult to produce a large number of, of positive outcomes. So the number of outcomes is the product of the number of families and the proportion of those families who, who have a success. So, you know, 
we did sort of try in the New South Wales and Queensland programs to sort of manage that that volume risk, as we sometimes call it, by having minimum referral targets for the government. But I think what we found over time was that that mechanism was was a little clunky. It created some inflexibility, and it, perhaps it also sort of didn't have you know as sharp a focus on optimising sort of how many people were coming were coming into the program. So for for South Australia, we had the opportunity just to sort of simplify things really and just have um, uniting communities kind of held accountable for the thing that they were more directly in control of, which was their success with working with the families that were in the program. And the government, I guess, retains fully the financial risk, the implications of the bit that they're fully in control of, which is you know, the referral process into the program. And as SIBs and, and outcomes-based contracts become more developed and, and the, the, I guess the, the thinking behind them becomes a bit more sophisticated, are you seeing across the, the landscape more, more, more broadly than the new pin that there is a um, you know, consensus emerging in, in terms of that um, or agreement that that parties should only, I guess, bear the risks that they can best manage or control? I think we're a long way from consensus on anything in the social impact bond space because everything's still so... Um, we're still in that era, that era of sort of really trying lots of things and seeing what works. But yes, there's certainly been, I think, um, a, a, a very much a shift in the direction of firstly understanding what the risks are in a, in a more sophisticated way and being clearer on who, firstly, who um, is responsible for the risk. Some risks nobody's responsible for, they just happen. And then it's the, the, the question of who, who wears the financial impact of that. Is it, is it government, service provider, investors? Um, where does that sit? So, uh, yes, I think definitely a shift towards people not being you know, overly penalised for things that they can't control, but also just um, perhaps also being a bit crisper about um, not trying to sort of measure too many things at once. Uh, there are different types of risks that are going on when a program's established and you know, sometimes maybe it's best for government to wear some of those risks or a philanthropist or, you know, it could be different parties that wear those risks. So, yeah, I agree. So one of the, the trickiest elements of a, a SIB or outcomes-based contract is understanding what happens in the absence of the program. You know, what would happen to this particular cohort if, if the new PIN program didn't, didn't exist? And then going about, you know, how do you, how do you determine exactly what that, that relevant benchmark is, you know, that performance is measured against? And, and specifically, how, how will that benchmark be determined? Um, and as um, you know, you've, you've learnt more about outcomes-based contracting over the years, you know, how have the counterfactuals for NUPIN um, changed and, and why is that? Mm, the great question, like compared to what? It's <laughs> always, one, as you say, one of the trickiest elements. And we've seen so many different types of counterfactual methodologies or approaches used across um, not just the NUPINs but, but bonds more broadly from you know, complex propensity score matching all the way through to you know, almost having no counterfactual and just you know, looking at you know, what the actual um, absolute rather than relative performance is. So in New South Wales for NUPIN, uh, one of the constraints early on was that the data about what was happening with the target population was 
a little bit unsophisticated because you know the, the clear definition of what a new pen family was was not easily sort of pulled out of government data sets and so setting a, a fixed target would have been a bit difficult it would have been a bit fraught with um, risk for all parties that that was just set too high or too low so a control group was established for new pin in new south wales and it was what we call an administrative control group so the department and uniting collectively went around the state trying to find new pin families who you know, would have been eligible for new pin if there was a center in their geography and sort of collected them notionally into a control group um, that was administratively um, time consuming it did give us for a couple of years then a good, um, a good clear answer as to you know, what would have happened otherwise, the sliding doors situation. And uh, that was okay for a while, but uh, I think everyone, once we sort of had a, a line of sight on that, was quite happy to sort of then revert to a, a fixed target um, that was informed by that control group construction and so just avoid that complexity thereafter. So in Queensland, there was a bit better data and there was a fixed baseline, fixed counterfactual um, determined at the beginning of the contract. Um, but then another situation arose where the people who were being um, brought into Newpin, in particularly the Cairns Centre, had a, a, a lot of complex issues that they were dealing with. So they were, they were as a group, um, probably relative to the general population that was being assessed as being eligible, they were probably more um, or having had more complex needs than than we expected, and because we had a fixed baseline, there was no way of really um, you know allowing for that. So in South Australia, we've sort of I think struck the happy medium where you know you alluded earlier to some of the good data that was we were able to sort of analyse in the joint development process. Um, what we found from that was that there were some you know, subcategories, so particularly based on how long a child had already been in care and also whether the child was from a First Nations family or not that were uh, quite strong predictors of how likely it was that the child would return home to their family. So we were able to set sort of targets at that sort of segment level. So um, when people are enrolled into the program in South Australia, they'll have a, a baseline that they're compared against still collectively but but the, the makeup of the group will be made up of segments which will have a segment specific rate for them so we don't have to worry about enrolling you know more complex or harder um, participants than than we were assuming was going to be the case um, so, so you were involved in the the new pin new south wales social benefit bond for over seven years uh, i know that you know representatives from from each of the parties would have would have um Change throughout that, so you you were a bit of a constant. That is, that is a really long time. So how did the parties really you know stay focused on, on what the objectives were for the new PIM program and, and the social benefit bond, you know, for such a what is a complex arrangement, you know, for that many years. Uh, everyone thought it was important. I think it's probably the first thing I'd say. Uh, the the strengths were firstly in the partnership. So. Maybe we were, there was a partnership that was sort of forged through the the, the, the fires of actually developing it in the first place because you know there, there were a lot of complex issues we had to work through, um, but it was a strong partnership and it was very respectful of each other's strengths and, and expertise you know right from the beginning and I think that maintained throughout. Uh, but the other really important thing was that all of the parties it always just came back to what's what, what are we here for is it is about the families and the children and. Um, trying to sort of 
make sure that nothing got in the way of the success of, of that that sort of you know, grand objective really so that was always a good grounding sort of um, you know, anchor point really the fact that there were stayers like me, it wasn't just me, there were others as well, meant that there was that transaction memory. And I think that was pretty important um, because there were times when we did need to know, oh, what do we mean by that? Or what was the intent of, of this, this process? So we could um, you know, bring that back into the present. Um, it, it does it point to the fact that it, that's something that has to be managed, I think, quite deliberately through long programs like this, that you can't rely on people hanging around like I did. You have to sort of make sure you are refreshing that knowledge and, and sort of regrounding everybody as people you know, come in and out of roles. Otherwise, you do perhaps get a bit of mission drift, people sort of forgetting what the intent was, or in the worst case scenario, you have you know, conflict over something because there's a lack of um, mutual understanding of what's meant to be happening, and that, that, you know, that could lead to a... You know, a less pleasant situation um, if challenges arise. And so a lot of work is done up front in, in developing the SIBs and you know each of the parties come to come together in terms of you know bring together their professional experience and available evidence to re, you know predict what's going to happen you know once services commence and, and as I touched on you know seven years is, is, is a long time who can really predict what's going what's going to happen then? And so, you know, inevitably something surely is never quite right, or you know, something's going to change. And I guess what what was sort of some of the specific things in in New South Wales and Queensland that that arose um, over the term of the contract? And and you know, I guess knowing that there is always going to be some uncertainty, um, you know, how has this been you know, factored in 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 the South Australian UPIN? Yeah, you can almost guarantee, no matter what the project is, not just for social impact bonds, that things won't go as exactly as planned. It happens everywhere. So, yeah, some of the things in... So in New South Wales specifically, um, one of the lovely things that happened was that there were less eligible families in out-of-home care, um, which was a, the consequence of a range of different sort of policy initiatives you know, within New South Wales. So nice problem to have that there are a smaller number of families in need and you know harking back to the points we made earlier that's uh, that can create then challenges if you're trying to run a program that's dependent on a you know certain population size so uh, it, it particularly created problems for that control group so there were less less other families to be able to put into the control group and it was getting it was getting harder so that was one of the things that that triggered the, the change in the counterfactual approach to going to you know a, the fixed approach rather than the control group um, so that was, you know, that was an unexpected um, challenge throughout the program. In Queensland, I think there were just, you know, there were a raft of things that just didn't quite play out as the spreadsheet sort of model that they would. And it was because of the, you know, at the underlying level, the things we've talked about with the sort of the eligible pool and the, the challenges of referrals and, you know, the, the, the the sort of the how long it took to I guess establish new pin particularly in Cairns with you know tr a trust-based relationship in in the local community um, so we we had a couple of sort of formalized contractual review processes and we had one early on where the parties did agree some changes to sort of try and get things back on a on a you know a footing that that was sustainable 
Um, but you know, a year later when the results were in, it hadn't really fixed things. And then we were in another review process. And you know, there perhaps would have been you know, some other modifications that could have been made. But you know, unfortunately, there wasn't, there wasn't common ground. And um, when there's not common ground, that's okay. Parties aren't always going to agree. And the, the good thing was that there was then a contractual out. So there was a termination right that could be triggered. So the, you know, the program was wound up because it wasn't delivering the results that it really needed to for all parties to want to continue. So, so we've always seen those sorts of mechanisms within the contracts, which I think has been critical. Um, in South Australia, they're there as well. I think over the years, we have sort of honed and refined what the the triggers and the terms and the consequences are for when things go wrong to sort of try to have a bit more flex for when for when the unexpected happens you can always sort of try to think ahead to sort of anticipate some of those things and figure out how you would deal with them ahead of time but you won't anticipate everything so you do need that flex still i think the more things are clearly documented and everyone just comes to it with that that shared understanding of what the overall objectives are, then that gives you the best opportunity to sort of be able to you know, navigate a way through and keep things going. And to a certain extent, there was a little bit less uncertainty with um, the new PIN program in New South Wales relative to Queensland, um, given that it had been an established program for over a decade. Um, where in Queensland, is a brand new program which brought you know a range of, of new challenges um, operationally and, and contractually. And that's exactly the same for NewPin South Australia. It's a, it's a new program. What were the challenges um, you know, experienced in Queensland you know, that were brought about you know, from it being a new uh, program and, and how have these learnings been applied in the, the South Australian context? The, the, so the, the challenges in Queensland, you know, hopefully not in South Australia, is it does highlight that you can't just flick a switch. It's not as simple as as just saying, oh, here's a well-credentialed program that's worked somewhere else, therefore we can just start it up and it will run the same way in a new geography. Um, and that's not just for social impact bonds, that's for any for any program, for any endeavour, really. You, you need to have that... There is that implementation risk, and at a really practical level, particularly for something like NewPin, you've got to find an appropriate venue or sort of a, a home, a NewPin centre. Then you've got to find the staff, you've got to build the, the culture, you have to ground the program in the local community, as we've, as we've touched on. And um, so there are always challenges, like even just having enough qualified staff and, and in the, that, that apply for the jobs. Um, in Queensland, there were there were neighbours um, to the Cairns Centre who weren't particularly thrilled about having that that program located next to them. Um, that created headaches, and you know, and we've Uniting Care Queensland put a lot of focus on um, trying to make sure that they were delivering a program that was going to be welcoming and 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 supportive of First Nations families because that was a real focus of the program up there. Uh, they partnered with a local you know, Aboriginal organisation to deliver a part of the program. Um, they had you know, Aboriginal staff and they engaged with the Aboriginal community and, and Torres Strait Islander community. Uh, but but it, it takes time to sort of to build those networks and so you can't just flick the switch and everyone knows about it and trusts it and, and starts, um, starts wanting to, to participate. Uh, so, yeah, so setting up any program like that you do. You have to allow, I think, in your in your planning for 
a, a phase of that that startup to occur. So for South Australia, I think there's been a you know a pragmatic um, some planning around how long it will take to set things up and how long it will take to enrol people, uh, but also the the implementation planning has started quite some time before service delivery starts uh, in South Australia. And I think I touched on before sort of co-locating with other organisations and starting that process of make building connections well before the first family, you know, walks in the door for the very first day. So you've been through a lot for all of the, the new PINs and, and there's obviously been a lot learnt along the way. And, and I guess there's this body of knowledge around outcomes-based contracting and, and social impact bonds. And I guess what you know, it's it's sort of ten years uh, over ten years since the very first social impact bond in the UK, and so with all these learnings, I guess what's next for social impact bonds and outcomes based contracting? I think that um, firstly, just from the, the the transactional perspective for social impact bonds, I do think things are getting faster and easier for, for because people have learnt a lot you know we've learnt from Newpin and other bonds and other you know other organizations and governments have also learnt a lot as well so the path is perhaps not well trodden yet but certainly a much clearer path and so we know what the the issues and the hard things to talk about and the challenges are and those are sort of addressed in a more structured way um, more quickly during during joint development phases so that that growing expertise, I think, is also meaning that there is better, you know, analysis of risks and benefits, as we as we talked about, like who who bears the risks and how do you structure payments so that it's it's fair and flexible in um, in a range of circumstances. So I think that in a, in at least in the Australian context, there is the likely likelihood that some of those um, pilots. Um, and the next the next generation of social impact bonds will will continue on evolve. I hope that's the case, and the reason I hope that's the case is that I think that there is broader applicability of the things that we're all learning through the hard stuff of building social impact bonds that can be rolled out across you know, government commissioning and also service delivery, um, you know, more generally. So some of those things that we've talked about like being clear about who it is you you're work you're working with like who are the people who need this service and making sure the service is tailored to their needs and then being accountable for outcomes so measuring what happens in a consistent way um, you know robustly over time and being transparent about it so that people can learn from your experiences you don't need a social impact bond to do those sorts of things but um, a social impact bond forces you to do those sorts of things. So um, I'm hopeful that we continue to see those learnings across, you know, a range of sort of states and and uh, target sort of problem areas uh, because they can feed back into you know the, the, a better social support system. I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Elise, for your time and and sharing you know, some of your deep insights and wisdom from from your time in the the social impact bond trenches um and thank you for everyone for, for tuning in and thank you pat for asking the questions <laughs> if you'd like to learn more you can head over to the sva quarterly website and read our latest article social impact bonds a tale of three new pens related podcasts and articles can be found on the sva quarterly site www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA 
hyphen quarterly forward slash.